immigration, blaming Trump for rhetoric and causing bombs to be sent to different Democrats, intersexuality and and whether there really is victim status for folks. And then is there a divide in America and even more so the church? That is some of the topics we'll be discussing today on The Rap Report. Welcome to The Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. All right. Well, welcome for joining us this week. We got a bunch of different topics on the agenda for today, things that we've been seeing in the news that we want to respond to. We do talk about biblical interpretations, both in scripture, in the church, and also within culture. We're going to deal with some cultural issues today. But I first want to give a shout out and a thanks to all of the listeners. Uh, we have been podcasting on this RSS feed with the Rap Report for about eight months now. We had to start from complete scratch and I'm really not that good at promotion and putting the word out and all the marketing stuff. So I was thrilled when I found out that the Rap Report has hit in the U.S. in religion and spirituality position 314. Now that may not sound like that high, but the the reality is there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts and actually the religion and spirituality is the heaviest pod of all podcasts to reach the top 400 means you got in the charts. Well, we have hit that a number of times on different episodes. In fact, we even hit within the category of Christianity 235. That was the peak. We've started to hit it more often, which means, and this is based on listens, not downloads. This is based purely on listens. We have had to start over from scratch. This is really exciting for us to realize that you guys are listening to it, sharing it. And the when we look at the charts, we realize that the majority of people listen to 80% of all the podcasts. And so we're really excited. I mean, we do, we had to start over. We were previously on a different RSS feed. And you know, that other RSS feed has never, ever hit the charts, ever top 400 in the US. US is where all the, the podcasts really hit, have the largest thing. So to hit those in the in United States means that there are a a lot of people listening and we appreciate all of those listens. And so to give you some numbers, if you have just 212 downloads on a podcast within the first 30 months, 30 days, you are in the top 50% of all podcasts. I think the number is 135. If you have 135 downloads in the first day, first 24 hours, you are in the top 50% of all podcasts. We exceed those, both of those numbers regularly. And so that puts us up there. In fact, that to hit the charts at the top 400 is very humbling to think about. Want to just give the shout out to you guys, the listeners, to those of you who are sharing this. We thank you. We appreciate it. It means a lot. It means a lot when you go out to iTunes and you review this because that's really the way we know how what you think about the, this podcast. You can go to the Striving Fraternity group on Facebook and share your thoughts there. We, we read those comments and that is very encouraging to us. Let me just start off instead of doing this at the end. I want to start off with the latest review we got. This is the latest review that we had. Five stars Stars says, hey, Andrew, thank you for coming to Redwood City for the conference. I've been listening to your podcast and it's very encouraging and challenging. Keep up the good work. Tall Andrew. Now, tall Andrew is the other Andrew that was at that conference and he was, well, quite a bit taller than me. So <laughs> I appreciate that. And, you know, this is the thing, folks, we could not be doing this without you. There are people who podcast to have them hear themselves speak. That's not us. Uh, we we want to interact with you. We want to hear from you. And so you can reach out to us. Let us know what you want us to discuss. You can 
contact us at info at strivingforeternity.org and then you could let us know, hey, we'd like to hear this topic or that topic. We have a growing list of topics and we slowly try to get to them. And sometimes like on this episode, we got to deal with more cultural things that we're seeing that are maybe of concern to, to, to us, to me, and want to address. Now, I want to start with some issues that we end up seeing in immigration. Now, with the issue of immigration, uh, here's the thing. There's been a lot of talk recently because of the fact that there is, um, well, there's basically an issue that you end up seeing with this supposed convoy of immigrants that are making their way up from South America all the way up and trying to get to the U.S. And President Trump has said, nope, you're not going to be allowed in. And there's people that are in uproar about this. Now, this is something that I find interesting. Why? There was a time that we saw a larger immigration issue with far more people than you see here. I mean, the, the, we're seeing, I think the numbers were last I heard, twelve to 1,500 people. Well, you know, in 1947, there were 4,515 immigrants that tried to get in to a country. Where were they fleeing? They were fleeing Nazi Germany. They were a ship of Jewish people. The ship was known as the, known as President Warfield. That was the name of the ship. And it was headed out, uh, to try to make it to Great Britain. And Great Britain not only decided to turn them away, Great Britain said, we're going to make an example of you. And they sent that ship. They captured the people and put them back on a ship and brought them back to where they ended up in Germany. Most of the people that were aboard that ship ended up being killed. Now, when, when it comes to the immigration laws that we look at in, in America, and the, the issue is one where you have to ask the question, is someone's life at stake? That's what makes it where they can seek asylum. Well, you know, on that, that ship known as the Exodus, uh, the Exodus 1947, that's what it's called. They're referred to. And what you end up seeing is on that, those people were clearly fleeing for their life. In fact, what we end up knowing historically is that the majority of them died in prison camps when they were returned. Some of them did survive. Um, about, I think it was 1,800 of them that survived. Uh, but the reality is, is that they ended up, a very interesting thing that on this ship, they brought with them a pastor, Reverend John Stanley Garrell. He was a Methodist minister. The interesting thing, why did they have a Methodist minister? The reason they had him was for one purpose. They state, quote, because it was very probable the British were, were going to be able to take the S exodus. It was the largest effort ever done in terms of movement of refugees. So if the ship was taken, someone has to get the information out. And they figured, I should say, unquote, they figured that they would get someone who is a Christian. They they ended up saying this, quote, they said he was a journalist. What his real job was, if the ship was taken, was to tell the story because they knew people wouldn't believe the story if a Jew told it. But if it was a Christian who told the story, it would be received differently. And that's exactly what happened, unquote. And I'm reading this from the, the JewishVirtualLibrary.org if you want to read more on that. And you can just do a search for Exodus 1947. I'll drop a link into the show notes. But here's the thing. There was a larger immigration that occurred. And at that immigration, those people actually died. It was clear beforehand that their life was at stake and their life not only was at stake,
stake their life was taken. The question I think that we have to ask in this in this exodus now that we're seeing from South America up into the United States, this is the question you have to ask is, are these people's lives at stake? Now, I don't know all the details and anybody who claims they do is wrong, okay? The reality is we are not going to know all the details, but from the details we do know, it doesn't seem that their lives are at stake as much as it was the Jews in 1947. In fact, we don't really know that that their life was at stake that much, the ones that we see migrating up. They're, they were able to walk their way through and and come all the way up to, to work their way to walk up into America. It takes a long time. They are growing as they come, and that makes it more of a concern. There are people in this migration that are literally, I think, going to take their lives at stake. It is not an easy journey what they're doing, and for many of them, it is the hope that they can come to a better land, to a better place, and be able to have opportunities that they wouldn't be availed where they are. We can understand that. We want the best for all people everywhere in the world, don't we? Especially those of us who are Christians. I firmly believe that we should be open to immigration, to immigrants coming here so we can share the gospel with them, especially those who come from countries where they don't get to hear the gospel. We should be reaching out to the immigrant, not putting them back into communities where they're with people who sound like them, talk like them, are just like them, and don't share the gospel with them. No, we as Christians should reach out to the immigrants and share the gospel. That should be a primary concern for us as Christians, because this is not our, our citizenship. We may be citizens of America or elsewhere, but our real citizenship is in heaven. That's what Peter says in First Peter. This is not our home, brothers and sisters. This is not where we're going to spend eternity. Do not put American or Britain or Canada or wherever you're from, do not put those citizenship values above the values of Christ, of heaven. That is exactly the argument that Paul makes in Philippians. Why Philippians? Very interesting town of Philippians. Philippi. Philippi was an area that was very, uh, very uh, well to do. In fact, the way that the Roman Empire worked with the Roman army is that the army would end up having people that come in, they're not citizens. But if you worked your way up to being a general, not only did you get citizenship, but you got land when you retired. You'd get a land. And many of the generals decided they wanted to settle in Philippi. So here you have guys who went all the way through the military. And, and that wasn't like military in America, boys and girls. No, no, no. This was a military where you most often never got to the point of retiring because you died in the military. And you didn't have a choice when you were enlisted because you didn't have a date to be let go until you retired. And you had to basically be old enough or work your way to being a general. And so what you end up seeing is for general it means that they lived their entire life in a, in this dangerous p- profession and were able to get to a point of retiring. They retire, they get the choice of land. Where do they all choose? Many of them chose Philippi. Philippi was such a unique city because Philippi ended up becoming a city where it was the only city outside of Rome where you would get Roman citizenship if you were born a free person. That was very special. Why was that? Because they had so much Roman generals that retired there. And you know, even in the book of Philippians, Paul makes arguments about our citizenship being in heaven, not on earth. To people who understood citizenship very much, because that was one of the key elements of being in Philippi, was you can have Roman citizenship. And so you see, Paul would argue that our citizenship should be that which is in heaven more than that which is on earth. And and my plea to all of us that are professed to be believers is that we should be looking to be arguing for our citizenship in heaven. We should be looking for immigrants that come in. We should be seeking to share the gospel with them. That's the most important thing we could do for them. And so what are the views we should have with this convoy? Well, I do pray for this convoy. There are many people taking their lives at risk. Could there be, as President Trump says, dangerous people, maybe even terrorists in this? Probably. I mean, would, wouldn't it make sense that terrorists would 
make an attempt to try to get in and do this? Yeah. Duh. Why would you think they wouldn't? Of course they're going to try that. They try every which way they can get in. But I think that there should be, you know, some screening done. These people, are, is there life at stake? That I don't know. I don't know if it's that far. But I do think that there is uh, something that we as Christians should be mindful of, and that is we need to be reaching out to those who legally come to this country. Uh, I do know people. I the guy who who uh, there's a guy who works on my neighbor's lawn, and he is from Mexico. He is very much against illegal immigration. Why? He's been here 18 years, and he can't bring his family up from Mexico legally because of all the illegal immigrants. He finally got his 16 year old son here. Uh, his 18 year old son's been here for a couple years. His wife and younger children are still in Mexico and he can't legally bring them because there's too much illegal immigrants coming in. So it's kind of an interesting perspective. And this is not something that you can just listen to a soundbite on the radio or on TV and go, oh, I got the answer to this. No, there's a lot here. As Christians, though, I would argue that for us, the immigration issue, we need to be mindful of the gospel. You know, and and I want to get into another issue that we've been seeing. And I want to play a clip that we heard. And I hope this this can be heard. But this is this is President Trump. And he was asked by a reporter whether his rhetoric, his rhetoric, not just with the specifically with the immigration, but really with the Democrats asking whether his rhetoric was something that's causing people to send bombs to different people in the Democrat Party. Listen to the question and and Donald Trump's President Trump's answer. Okay, so he's blaming the media. Well, that's not unusual, <laughs> right? So so what you have here, though, is the question that was asked of President Trump, and sorry, he, he was, I guess, outside of uh, Air Force One or whatever, and so you have the hel- helicopter, or I guess Marine One, technically. Uh, but what you end up having is um, he's being asked, is his rhetoric causing the violence? Now, the issue is, is something we should be concerned with, the fact that there were several bombs sent to several different key Democrat people. That is not something that should ever be in However, I do find it interesting that none of them were functioning. It's almost as if someone wanted to send the bombs, but he didn't want them to go off. Now, they did capture a guy that they said was involved in sending some later ones. He hasn't been shown to do having done the earlier ones to like Obama and others. It is kind of interesting. Some of those were hand-delivered, an interesting thing, but all of them malfunctioned. It's almost as if someone wanted... Just saying, I can't prove this. I'm just saying it could be. But it sort of seems like someone wanted it to be out there that bombs were being sent and we got to blame Trump's rhetoric. Well, here's the thing. I want to point out that there are some things when we evaluate anything, you got to look at premises of arguments. When you look at the premise of the argument, the argument is that Donald Trump should be blamed for his rhetoric causing people to go out and send bombs. Now, has President Trump ever encouraged anybody to send bombs to Democrats? Well, I don't know of a single case. And if there was, we would have seen that on CNN. I mean, if there was, CNN would have been posting that like everywhere. So I'm going to say that I think that hasn't happened. But you want to know something I do find interesting is when the Democrats Democrats were asked whether they should be blamed when Republicans are being chased out of restaurants and being having things thrown at them in the streets and being chased and being attacked on the streets, whether their rhetoric, which was exactly what they said, you, you can go and you can look at these Democrats who 
are saying that if you see a Republican in a restaurant, you should chase them out. And that's exactly what's happening. And they say their rhetoric has nothing to do with the behavior of people. Well, if their rhetoric is not to be blamed when it's exactly what people are doing, then how can you blame President Trump for his rhetoric when people are doing things he hasn't said? You see, you have to be fair on both sides. Whatever your argument is going to be, if it's going to be sound and valid and truthful, then it's going to be right, even if you put it in another situation. See, the argument that the, that we're seeing right now from the media and, and some Democrats is they're allowed to say, go after Republicans, and that shouldn't be against them in, in that they're causing it. But if Trump says anything that even seems, just, just seems to be, you know, disagreeing with Democrats, then he's got to be blamed for anything that ever happens to Democrats. In fact, you know, there was a Democrat who, who had said we that Republicans want to kill them. His name is Bernie Sanders. And one of his followers said it was exactly because Bernie said that, that he went and shot some Republicans that were trying to play softball. It wasn't said that Bernie Sanders was to blame. You know, I don't blame Bernie Sanders for using the political rhetoric that caused some lunatic to kill people. That lunatic is responsible for his action. This this guy and whoever else is maybe involved in sending bombs to Democrats, they are responsible. I don't blame Trump and I don't blame Democrats. Now, are they responsible? responsible. Is Trump responsible for the things he says? Yes. Are the Democrats responsible for things they say? Yes. Now, if they say things that are purposely worded to incite behavior, then they are responsible for that. You see, I don't think people can say they can just walk away from responsibility when they say things and they purposely word it in a way to get a reaction from people and people do react that way. You can't say, well, you're not responsible anymore. You see, if you're doing it to incite a reaction, like saying when you see a Republican in a restaurant, you should chase them out. When that happens, you are somewhat responsible for your own words that cause that behavior if you're seeking to create that. And so that's something that they, I think there is some responsibility that they would have to be responsible for. Because as Trump said, is it the media's fault for inciting violence by fake news? Now, first off, President Trump nowadays, everything is fake news to him. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if he doesn't agree with it, it's fake news. But but the reality is, is that there is some truth in what he says, but there's also a reality where you can't blame him. He is not responsible or, or they're not responsible for the behavior of others. And this is going to get into some of what we see in the social justice movement nowadays and this whole thing of intersexuality we're going to get to in a moment. But this idea where others are to be blamed for things that they had nothing to do with. Uh, they're blamed for things that uh, their parents did or their grandparents did or generations ago did, or maybe none of their generations have done, but just the fact that they're a certain skin color. I want to deal with that in a moment. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons! Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdothebelieve.com. Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at sharing the good news with Mormons. 
A new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the good news with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from MRM.org. All right, so let's deal with this whole thing. Maybe you've heard the term intersexuality. What the, What is also? It's basically this idea that the more victim status you have over someone else, the more you have a right to speak, the more you have a right to say things. And we end up seeing that this has become a big thing nowadays. So if you have someone who uh, is African-American versus white, well, they're a victim and they have more right to speak than a white does. If you're a African-American woman, well, you have more right to speak because you have two victim statuses than an African-American male. If you're an African-American lesbian, now you have three victim statuses, so you have more of a right than the African-American woman. And you see, it keeps going on. Everybody is looking to to say, well, I'm more of a victim than you. I'm more of a victim than you. Everybody has victim status. And this is what we see going on with this social justice issue. And by the way, I will mention as a plug, go to you can go to the statement on socialjustice.com and read the statement of social justice on the and the gospel, maybe even sign it. But I should go out there and see how many folks have actually uh, signed that now. But the on the thing that is an issue is we're seeing this issue of, of the church being affected um, by the idea that we should be about the business of social justice. And you have people in the church trying to argue for victim status. The gospel is the solution to victim status. It is not something we should be using to try to argue for victim status. And there is almost 10,000 signers, 9,901. So, uh, but you can go and you can read that statement on socialjustice.com and, uh, so the reality is, is when you, what you end up seeing is there are people that even within the church, I want to argue that they have a right to be victims. They have, um, you know, the ability to say, well, I have more victim status than you. And, you know, the, the thing that you end up seeing is that people are going out of their way to try to argue that they have a right to be a victim. It is something that it, 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 the, it has gotten to the point of being completely ridiculous with some. Um, you can look at the very white woman, Elizabeth Warren. Um, Elizabeth Warren is what, what, 124th percent Native American or something like that. And she claims that she is, uh, she, she has, she's Native American. She's victim's ass. She went to college and got a scholarship being a minority because she was a Native American. You know what? She had to apologize to the Native Americans because they actually have a record of every Native American and you have to register to be a Native American. And there was, I guess, no one in her family that actually registered. Um, so according to the Native Americans, she's not Native American. She's arguing that she is one out of one over 1024 percent Native American. But hey, that's enough for her to say, I'm a victim. I need to be given status. Everyone is going out of their way to try to argue that they are more of a victim than someone else. You, you want to know what? There is only one person that ever walked the planet Earth that truly was absolutely innocent of any kind of inherited sin, of any kind of saying that he was a systemic racist because of something his family did. This idea of systemic racism is the fact that if you are white, you are responsible for what other whites have done by enslaving blacks. That is the argument. Well, Jesus Christ never had an inherited sin. He had, he existed, well, he always existed. And therefore, you can't argue that he was guilty by his genealogy, by what his father or mother did, or their family. 
families. No, because he was before there was any human being. And so what you end up seeing there is that in that, Jesus Christ, if anybody could argue that they never had a systemic racism and was completely innocent of any crime. Jesus Christ never violated any law. And here you have someone who's completely innocent. What does he do? He dies on a cross as the only true victim of humanity, the perfect man, never breaking the law. And he chose to die and be a victim for others. This is the thing that the church has to recognize. These people within the church. Now, I understand why the world would argue for intersexuality and we're all victims and we all, I understand because they don't have Christ, but Jesus Christ is the solution to victimhood. What bothers me is when we see in the church, we see people who want to, within the church, try to argue for victim status and try to argue that they're more of a victim or because you're not like me, you don't have a right to speak on these things. I'm sorry, but the cross is the solution, not your victim status. I like how how uh, Justin Peters puts it. You know, he ends up saying this and, and he's not alone. I mean, Josh Bice has said this and Tom Askell has said this, but as if somehow the gospel reaches just to the point of every other other sin except racism, and then all of a sudden you need something special. And, it, and it's not just racism, because now they want to extend that to, to dealing with the issues of homosexuality and other sins. Racism is wrong, okay? But the thing is, is that the gospel is the solution to racism. The gospel is a solution to every sin. And so when people sit here and say, well, I'm a victim, I'm a victim of it. No, the victim, the only victim was Jesus Christ. That's the victim. And you know what he did? He purposely came and died. As Christians, we should not be touting our rights to victimhood. We should be touting our rights to Jesus Christ and promoting Christ. You know what? If we as Christians are victimized for the sake of Jesus Christ, let it be. I just recently watched the the uh, documentary or movie about uh, Richard Wormbrandt. If you don't know who he is, he's the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. As he stood up there when the communists were sitting there and, and speaking of basically trying to gut the church and try to say, well, we want to work with the church by undermining the church and taking the church and saying, we want you to change your message to something that the, the that atheism could promote, that, you know, communism can promote. And we want you to change your message to a different message to one that we want you to say and undercut your the gospel for the sake of getting along. And Richard Wormbrandt sat there and his wife asked him whether he's going to get up and say anything. And he says, if I get up and say anything, you won't have a husband. And she's quoted as saying things like, well, if, if you, it, you know, she doesn't want a coward for a husband. You know, like if, if he doesn't get up, she doesn't really have a husband. And he got up and he spoke before all of the clergy there assembled and and said that they must speak out against this and that the gospel must be the thing that is the issue to change society, not communism. That hasn't changed any. We see people coming into the church and trying to undermine the church with a message that the culture presents. It is undermining the gospel. That's why this is so important. It is so important because it undermines the gospel message. Jesus Christ was a victim. He never sought victim status. He never tried to argue he shouldn't be put on the cross because he was perfect and he was something none of us could argue. He never tried to, to claim a right as a victim. No, he knew all along he was a victim and he went to the cross anyway. As Christians, we must put the gospel far above the issue of what we think is our victim status. There is a divide in America. We see this going on. 
This is something that I think is should be very concerning to us. This divide in America where people have to be, you either have to be with us or against us type of mentality is very, very concerning. We understand it's a divide and conquer mentality. We understand politically that politicians will try to divide people so that they can gain support. Black versus white, Christian versus homosexual, as if there's some, I mean, right there, I mean, just, I want to stop, let me stop on that one for a moment because the reality is as Christians, we should care for every single person, whether they're practice homosexuality or not. The reality is, is that if you as a Christian don't reach out to the person who practices homosexuality, how are they going to hear the gospel? The reality is, is that the world would like to tell them, no, you don't associate with Christians and Christians, you don't associate with homosexuals because they don't want the gospel being heard. I remember being in New York City at Union Square and having one man named James. James came. James w- wanted to talk about homosexuality. As I sat and talked with him, when I asked him if he'd shake my hands, all of his friends that practice homosexuality grabbed him. They did not want him to shake my hand after we got done in an exchange where I shared the gospel with him. Why? They literally said this to him, don't give in to that Christian. See, for them, it was a, it's an us or them mentality. It is, you have to be all in with us. You can't have associate with them. The thing that really bothers me, I see that coming into the church. Man, we see this so often. We we see this where if you associate with this person, then we're done with you. There, there was a whole brouhaha with James White, where James White is going to go and he's going to go to a, a and do a, a talk with a Muslim. And now all of a sudden, everyone has to can't associate with James White. Or or you have other people. I mean, I, you know, I on this podcast had done an interview about a, a so, with a, a guy named Les who was doing a movie about about worship. Man, people are so outraged because don't you know who this guy is? He he drinks beer. Okay, I mean, like, so you can't associate with him at all. I, I had someone call me up and spent two hours telling me how I have to call this person out. You know, I did ask him before we went live. I talked to him. I asked him his testimony. As far as I could tell from what he said, he seems like he's a believer. Do I agree with everything he believes? I don't agree with everything anyone believes. <laughs> I brought, I don't even believe agree with myself what I believe 20 years ago. I mean, give me a break. So the reality is nobody agrees perfectly with everybody. And if they do, they're probably delusional or just don't know what they haven't thought through the issues well enough. But I have to say, is this person a brother in Christ? As far as I could tell from his testimony, I think so. I have no reason to, to, to question it. Do I agree with him? No. He and I disagree on a whole bunch of things, but I enjoyed the fellowship that I had with him. And you know what? 10,000 years from now, none of us are going to be asking questions of, oh, did you associate with this person or that person or this person? No. You know, I had I had someone that that uh, has been was calling me out because I did a conference with Jordan Hall. Do Jordan Hall and I agree on things? No, we we don't agree on a bunch of things. It doesn't mean that I don't think he's a brother in Christ. I, I think he would think I'm a brother in Christ, and so we can go to a conference and speak at the same conference. Is that a problem? Well, it might be if you know I'm I'm changing a message to to reach you know to be more uh, uh, trying to to be placating to the person. I mean, if I I, I don't care if if the Pope invited me to the Vatican I and I can preach anything I want, I would go. If I was asked to go to a conference, I was asked to go to a flat earth conference and I said I would be willing to go if I can speak on anything I want. If they let me speak about the absurdity of flat earth, I would have went. When they found out the topics I wanted to speak, I guess they didn't want me there. The reality, I don't know why they invited me in the first place, but the reality is that I'll go anywhere if I can speak the clear, unadulterated gospel message. That's the thing. I don't mind 
speaking with someone that I disagree with. Look, one of my one of my best friends, Matt Slick, and I are very well known for disagreeing. It is clear. We do a podcast together, the, the Apologetics Live. You can listen. Go to apologeticslive.com. You can watch us every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, and you can watch us as we, we deal with apologetics. There's nobody who watches that doesn't know that we disagree. We disagree on a whole bunch of issues. And yet, as we disagree, you know what? We disagree, and we can disagree and still think one another is a brother in Christ. And, and you know, we can end up seeing that there are things that we should not be doing, which is so common in Christianity today. In Christianity today, you end up seeing so many people, well, if, you, if you're going to be with this person, I can't associate with you. If you're going to be, if you're going to hang out with that person, I, if you're going to promote this person, I can't be with you. You want to know a very depressing thing was when Matt Slick did two debates. Okay. The guy's nuts. Debated David Smalley one day, debates, uh, um, Matt Dillahunty the next day. So those guys just had to prepare for one debate. Matt prepared for two different debates, two different people, two different topics, next two nights back to back. The neat thing was that we got to meet a lot of atheists at that. And there was, I forget what was happening at the time, but I remember talking to a bunch of atheists and asking him about something that some guy was doing. And so many of them wouldn't call out this person. They, they, they didn't want to say it was wrong or this or that. I had one person, one atheist Sunday night that really depressed me um, because he told the truth. Here's what he said when I, when I talked him about this situation. He said, Andrew, I got to tell you, son, I like you, but you're the enemy. He said, the reality is what he's doing is he is doing great damage to the Christianity. I will never speak out against him because he is damaging your message. And that's more important. He understood what Christians should understand. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we, you and I, who know Jesus Christ, we should be the ones that if we see people that are genuinely believers in Christ, we should be willing to work together. We have secondary issues, but it is more about spreading the gospel message to the unbelievers. And the reality is so many people, especially on social media that profess to be Christian, prefer to attack other Christians rather than address issues of the world. They would rather try to build platforms by attacking and vilifying and slandering other Christians rather than put the gospel first. Because I got news for you. I think Paul had it right in Philippians chapter 1. When people were slandering him, and he says whether they do it in truth or falsehood, either way, the gospel is going forth and I will rejoice because the gospel is going out. And so that is what we should be doing. It's about the gospel. And we should be working with one another where we can. But you know, if I don't if I don't want to work with another person because I have differences and those differences prevent me from working with another person, it doesn't mean I have to be publicly slandering them or speaking out even if it's even if I say things that are true. I don't have to do that. There's some people that feel like they have to do that with everybody. The reality is I do not have to point out everybody's faults. Yes, there are some things that we will do. I mean you take a Benny Hinn or any of those guys. I mean, anyone that's been listening to this podcast, you know that I'll speak out against those guys. And yet the reality is, is why? Because I don't believe they're believers and they're preying on people who claim to be believers. They're trying to get immature, young believers to be fooled and to be deceived and to follow after falsehoods so that they won't have any spiritual maturity Yes, they may be saved, some, but the, these guys, they're, they're wolves. Well, there's a difference when you have a wolf that's preying on sheep. I think there's a difference there. But the reality is, it's being clear that those are unbelievers. You know, when you have people that are attacking believers, or, or it's like, oh, if you disagree with me, you're not a believer. Oh, 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 hey, you, you believe that? You're not a believer. I mean, everything's a gospel issue these days. I had somebody who actually told me years ago that drinking alcohol was a gospel issue. He said to me, when I said, are you telling me that someone must drink alcohol to be saved? He said, if, if 
you are a Christian, you should have dominion over alcohol and you must drink, even if you had a problem with it in the past. I have real concerns about that belief. That that almost becomes another gospel in my mind when you tell people they must drink alcohol to prove they have dominion. And and that becomes a different issue. Um, and so as Christians, there needs to be unity in the body of Christ. We need to be unified. We need to have one gospel, one body, one Holy Spirit. That is what we end up seeing Paul say. I mean, you look at, I mean, spend some time reading 1 Corinthians please? Because 1 Corinthians is, you know, yes, I know it deals with the issue of spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all that. Yes, it does. But you know what else it talks about? It talks about the fact that we all have different giftedness, but we're bodies. Well, verse 12, uh, 12, 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body through, though many, are one body, so that it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. I don't care, black, white, you used to practice homosexuality, now you're saved. Whatever it is, wherever you were before Christ, when we are in Christ, we are part of one body. We need to start acting that way, especially in social media. The world is watching. The world sees the division and it laughs because what many Christians are doing is is helping them. Now, one other thing before we get into a, a discussion on some of these things, one other thing that I'd like to point out is that, did you know that there's a new game out there? A new Pokemon Go game. That's right. The Vatican has come out with a Pokemon Go, their own version. Yeah, let's hear about that in a moment. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity. And they provide speakers and seminars that come to your church with expertise in theology, hermeneutics, world religions, creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, church history, and expertise in sexual abuse in the church. For details on their seminars and to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Striving to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 29.11 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area. All right, so that's right. You end up having the Vatican coming out with their own game. Now, the Vatican wants to be show how relevant they are, uh, so they're going to come up with a Pokemon Go game of their own. I'll put the show notes in the show notes. I will drop the, the article from the Business Insider about the Vatican's Pokemon Go game. You know, they are no better than many of these preachers uh, that sit up in churches and want to be really relevant and hip, so they talk about 1980s movies, you know? <laughs> They talk about movies that have, that they grew up watching and they aren't relevant anymore. Well, Pokemon Go was a phase, like for a few weeks back in nine, in, in, in a 2016, like two years ago. And not many people are playing it anymore, but they, the Vatican has their game. It's called Follow JC Go. They should have just called it Vatican Go. But the reality is instead of chasing after Pikachu and Squirtle, the Vatican's version has, is involved in collecting saints and other biblical figures. And if you go, I mean, just go on your iPhone or Android and look at the game. It is cheesy looking. I mean, they want to show how hip and relevant they are. So what do they do? They make 
make it look like it's childish and no one's going to want to play it. It's, it's, it's like more of a joke, I think, than anything when you end up looking that they, and they, they take it serious, I understand, but the reality is that when you look at their, their follow the G, JC for follow Jesus, uh, go and you end up seeing that this, this game that they have is supposed to teach people about spirituality. In fact, this is really depressing, but let me read you one of the ratings that they got on this app. This is, uh, a five star rating. Um, let me tell you before this app, I didn't believe very well. I didn't have the love and compassion of Jesus yearns for me to have, but thanks to this app, I've memorized every single period in the Bible and now people fear for my safety, but none of that matters because Jesus still loves us all the same. I haven't had a single meal in roughly three weeks or so I believe since I have lost track of time altogether, I had to make enough space in my mind for Jesus. So I forgot about everything else. I am now 17 and live in an elderly care home because my parents are convinced I have Alzheimer's and autism, but it's really just my love for Jesus that brings me this far. I truly do feel enlightened, although my doctor told me I will die within a week if I do if I do not continue to eat and drink, but I simply tell them, leave me because they are atheists and I soon, and they will soon rot in a fiery pit of hell for all eternity. I shall be with the right hand of Jesus and will be beside him on the final day, the day the whole world will end and the last day of all people. I gave up everything for Jesus and I know I will pay uh, out in the world. I hope you all feel the same way. All because of an app, not because of the Bible. That's concerning. I mean, here what this game is, is that once you catch the, all of the, the saints, you, you, the goal is to catch them all, the saints that is, and because, you know, it's all about saints in Roman Catholicism, and so it's all about distraction from the truth of God's word, and so you catch the saints, and then they become your spiritual squad, and now you become an evangelism team that follows Jesus together. I mean, this is what this game is is about. It is a, a Supposedly, a, a a augmented reality type of game that the Vatican has put out. It it supposedly cost half a million dollars and took two years, actually thirty two thousand development hours, to come up with this game. And when you look at it, it's cheesy looking. And this is something that the Catholic Church is promoting to help people to help reach millennials because they say that twenty percent of the millennials have left the Catholic Church, and they're trying to reach out to them through a game because the Bible just is not enough. That's the reality. That's the real message that you end up seeing. Whether it's the Catholic Church or the Christian Church, we're seeing that it's just the fact that people think that the Bible is not enough. The sufficiency of Scripture is what's at, at set that's at the issue. It is the Scripture sufficient. I would say yes, this, the Scripture should be sufficient. And yet the reality is that so many do not want to look to the Scripture. They do not want to turn to the Scripture as the source, because it's only within the Scripture we're going to get answers. And, and that becomes the real issue. And, you know, we end up seeing this in one of the most popular preachers that's becoming well-known now, really off of Daddy's name, but making a name for himself in bad ways, and that would be Andy Stanley. Oh, did I just mention the name? Yes. Andy Stanley wants to get rid of the Old Testament. Well, we got to be unhitched from the Old Testament. In fact, we shouldn't be arguing at all for the Bible said so. We should say the resurrection said so. You see, he, he wants to say that, that Christianity is not based on the Bible. It's based on the resurrection. Uh, 
Andy, how do you know the resurrection happened? That's right. You read about it in the Bible, that thing you want to unhitch. How do you know the resurrection was a, was a prophecy, Andy? Oh, because you read it in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. That's how you know that was a prophecy. And so you sit here and want to say, as many are trying to do in appealing to the world, you notice that the theme that's been going through all these different topics that we have here today, the theme is that the, the church seems to want to, to, you know, get close and be partners with the world, with the culture, and not stand up for Jesus Christ. That's the issue. Now, you know, I have a, I have a friend with me here today. We're gonna we're gonna discuss some of these things because I think he he's gonna have some valuable insight. He's he's someone whose voice you should recognize if you've been listening to this podcast. Okay, if you have not been listening from the beginning, what is wrong with you? Go back and binge. Go back to those early episodes. I think he was like on episode nine. I should go. I should really go and check and see what episode he was on. But he is none other than the infamous pastor. <laughs> he's laughing. The infamous pastor Jim Osmond from Kootenai Kootenai Community Church. Yeah. I gotta make sure I pronounce it right because it's not kukani, kukami, kukarakami, kuka, kuka something, kickami no. in the shin. I, I, so, you know, can you come up with a good name for your town there? Well, it, I wasn't around when they named it. If I had been, we would have named it Osmondville. <laughs> no, that's Osmond with a D, right? Like, like no, Marie, no D. O S M A N. No relation to the Mormon family at all. You know, but hey, you know, you could you could have been up there singing. You were on episode seven. Was the last time you were on episode seven? Yeah. Now you. You and I, you and I, you and I were just together. I was out at your church. I had the privilege of speaking at your church, and those those messages are online at your church website. Um, that is correct. And that was your first, the first of your conference series, your fall conference. You got a spring conference coming up uh, that is with none other than uh, Jason Lyle. That's right. Yeah, we were uh, originally slotted to have Costi Hinn come out. We were going to do something with Costi Hinn and Justin Peters on a uh, kind of like a false teaching conference, mostly about rec- uh, rescuing loved ones from false teaching, kind of geared toward how do we have conversations with our loved ones who are involved in false teaching or love false teachers. How do we generally share the truth with them? What are good resources? We're going to devote a whole weekend to kind of answering that question and dealing with those issues. But Costi is heading to India to do a series of meetings over there for some pastors who have asked him to come over. And uh, I don't know that Costi would promote this um, himself, but he's doing it at his own expense because these are poor pastors over in India who cannot afford to bring him over. Uh, but he called me up and he said, you know, you've got Justin Peters in your church. Your church is not dealing with false teaching. These guys really need me um, more than you do. And I said, no, that's, you're absolutely right there. So uh, we canceled that. And we, uh, then I went to Jason Lyle. I think who, who we had other people booked for a few years out, but we decided to go to Jason Lyle and see if we could slot him in, and he happened to be available that weekend. So um, we're going to be pleased to bring him out. I think he's down in Texas. We're going to be pleased to bring him out and try and convince him to move to Idaho. <laughs> yeah, it does seem you try to do it. Do you, do you have any ins with Justin Peters? I mean, do you, do you know that guy at all? Uh, I, we've met a couple times. Our paths have crossed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, your paths have crossed in church. <laughs> so, yes. so uh, yeah, I should say that uh, you, you've done quite a bit to try to convince people to move to your to Idaho to, to go to the good guys. We we we're trying to collect all the good people up here. <laughs> yeah. So so I mean let's talk. You you um you've been on the forefront of some of these social justice issues. I know Justin has been very much involved in the statement on social justice, has concerns about these things. And uh 
uh, I know that, uh, you, you, you like to praise the fact that you signed the statement on social justice and the gospel before I did. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if that's actually true. We'd have to check that, but I'll think, I don't know if there's a timestamp on it, but, uh, I, I think that was signature number 19 or something like that. I, I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I know it was before I, it was released and it was, it was probably at least a week before or, well, no, it was, than, it was more than a week because, uh, when we, when we put the statement out, I think before the statement was ever, I mean, the statement was going to go public and then it, we moved the date two weeks out. And I think it was, I think I signed it two weeks, maybe or a week before the original. So it was like a month before it went public, I think. And yeah. by the time I, and I had gotten it, but I just didn't get around to reading it for several days. And by the time I got it, I think, I think I was like, I want to say in the fifties or sixties by the time I signed it. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, so you, you, you were definitely before me, but I, I was also, you know, I know it got sent to me and it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll put this on the list. <laughs> but let, let's talk about this. I mean, you, you heard some of what I shared. I mean, I, I see a concern with the church where, you know, I think about even, um, C.S. Lewis's book on, uh, screw tape letters where he has this demon who's being mentored by another demon. And it's like, how do you, how do you basically make Christians, uh, useless in the, in really what the main emphasis of Christianity should be is sharing the gospel. And it was like you know, all these different tactics. One of them was attack other Christians, you know, show that, that you're like the world. Look at, look at the baker over there. Look how he sins. And, you know, it, it was, it was about distraction. And unfortunately, I, to me, it seems like this works, unfortunately, very well. Mm-hmm. And we certainly see it within the culture and within the church. There's this, um, almost this sharp division that exists in the culture. And since Christians for 40 years have been told by their pastors and by their churches and by their philosophy of ministry growth, uh, experts that we need to be more like the world in order to win the world, the church has learned the lesson and learned it well from men like Andy Stanley and Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. We've become just like the world. So this sharp dichotomy, this, this by, uh, this binary choice that we have where you're, you know, you got to choose a camp. You can't be anywhere in the middle. I mean, if you try and take some sort of a middle road where you, you say, well, you know, in, in terms of the last election, I, I was not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for him. I, I, I voted a third party ticket. Well, for a lot of people, I, I'm a heretic for not voting for Trump because he was the best choice and out of the two. And I didn't really fall into either one of those binary categories. You know, I wasn't, I, I certainly did not vote for Hillary Clinton, would never, even if it meant my life, I would never cast a vote for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, but, but I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in my conscience voting for Trump with what I knew about him and what I saw at the time. And, uh, so I just, I couldn't cast that vote. Well, man, that puts me not in either camp, you know, so I got, I got people on both sides calling me a, um, a compromiser and a heretic, et cetera, for making a decision like that. And it's, it's that way with everything. It's that way with everything, Andrew. If you're not going to, if you try and take a middle of the road approach to almost any subject and trying to say, well, two things can be true at the same time. Uh, Trump can be, in terms of his approach to women and his rhetoric, he can be over the top. He can be unchristian. He can be uncharitable. And the Democrats have lost their cotton picking minds. You know, both of these can be true at the same time. And we can, we can as Christians, we ought to step back and not feel comfortable in either party where we get to the point where we are, we're taking sides and we are, we're joining forces with one team and excusing things that 20 years ago we would have condemned. I'm old enough to remember the Clinton administration. I remember what the conservative approach was to the moral peccadillos of Bill Clinton. And now we see some of these same people coming out and because, because the guys on our side of the aisle are doing it, because the guys on our side of the aisle don't have character, they're defending things that they found reprehensible 20 years ago. And why is it? It's just because one guy has an R behind his name. And as Christians, we ought to be able to step outside of that and above that and be able to critique both sides of it and to say, look, this is not our home. I don't feel comfortable in this camp and I don't feel comfortable in that camp. And so sometimes uh, never, never, ever does the Democratic Party represent me. Sometimes the Republican Party represents me. Well, you but know, I 
can't land on the Republican Party as if as if that is my home, as if that are, do represent me all the time. There are some Democrats who would represent. I mean, there are I mean, there are fewer and fewer. But the reality is, we, we you know, this is the whole thing. It's it's this and you hit it on the head. It's this binary mentality, us versus them. Right. And that's the way the world approaches everything, because the fabricated outrage over whatever the scandal of the day is, whatever the latest news item is that came out and, and hit the headlines today or Friday or whatever it was, whatever that fabric, it's 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 fabricated outrage. And so the, the, the people get upset and you've got to choose. you got what side of this are you on? Are, are you defending this person? Or are you critiquing this person? And uh, and we're always forced on every issue to choose our camp. And and the media profits from that. The political parties profit from that. But the American people don't. I mean, it's, it's you're, we're always we're always told that you, you have to be outraged over something and it has to happen now and you have to join our club. And, and there's just this polarization that is taking place in, in our nation. It's really sad to see that. Um, I don't see any way out of it. And I think that it's happening, like you say, in the church as well. And and I think that it is in the church. I think it's especially on social media. Here's the thing I find very interesting. Years ago, I remember a guy on on Facebook who was posting things about dispensationalism. Now, whether you agree with dispensationalism or not, not the issue. But this guy knew that what he was saying about dispensationalism was not accurate. He knew it was wrong. He he knew that what he was saying was not true of a dispensational position. And I asked him about it. I'm like, dude, how can you be posting this? You know, you this is so controversial what you're saying, and you know it's not what dispensationalists hold to. And he messaged me and said, that's okay. The more people that respond to it and comment on it and like it means the more that other things I post will show up on their feed. I said, so you know this is inaccurate? He said, oh yeah, but you have to, and here's how he justified it, but you have to create controversy to get the traffic. And yeah, that's, a, that's a pragmatic and justifies the means type of an unethical position on things. When you oh, yeah. come out and you, you intentionally misrepresent something or even questionably misrepresent it, and you're not clear about something in order to push people to a certain conclusion, that's just unethical. I, I think that's not Christian behavior, and that's the issue right. I have. You know, and, and I remember one of the guys who used to work for us um, he posted something and it wasn't, you know, it, it was sound like I believe salvation by works. Now, what he meant by it, I knew very well. He meant the work of Christ, but he's just trying to be controversial. And I remember contacting him and saying, brother, you know, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do on Facebook, um, but you do represent us. I said, just think about what you're doing. What's the motive behind you doing that? He said, well, I guess the motive was kind of be kind of controversial. It's edgy. It wants to be edgy. Yeah. Right. Just push the envelope just a little bit, kind of stay outside the box a little bit, think outside the box, talk outside the box and generate some generate some attract uh, some attention correct generate the attention is the thing and he ended up saying i said you know is that really what we should be looking to do as christians and he's like you know what no and so he stopped i i never saw him do anything like that after that he took that post down never did it again and you know i'm not saying that you can't put something um i mean look we we do podcasts we do blog articles we want people to click on it we, we're going to word it things that uh are going to catch people's attention but when you word it something that's wrong to get clickbait that that I, you know, or to, or to son, you know, is not truthful. Um, I remember a, a podcast that posted that someone was a heretic and you listen to the podcast. They don't even mention the guy's name at all ever. And it's like, so it's just like clickbait. I mean, it's just to get people to go, Oh, what's, what, what's wrong with this guy? And you go mm-hmm. and you listen to a whole thing, nothing. And I, I just don't think that's what, how Christians should be behaving and, and doing. And, I think that we've given into the world. You're right. It's pragmatic. It works. Um, for the world's argument, it works. And yes, the way that the world works with social media, with getting traffic, getting, um, you know, getting, uh, um, 
you know, likes and, and responses and comments on social media. Yeah, that stuff may work and it may get, uh, you know, people that they think they got some platform behind them. But the reality is, is are we forsaking the platform of Christ for the sake of the platform of man? And I don't care if it's Andy Stanley. I mean, you, you brought up Bill Hybels. He's really, you know, he and John Ankerberg are really some of the guys that we could, we can look to for the, the fact that we, we have a lot of this. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that they did by, by taking a survey and saying, what is it? Why is it people don't go to church? Oh, you don't like this. You don't, you, you don't like that. Oh, you don't want to talk of this. And we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll craft a church to your liking. And it worked. I mean, it worked for 20 years. And, and then Bill Hybels started evaluating his own church and went, wait a minute. Uh, this church seems to be filled with a bunch of unbelievers or spiritually immature people. Uh, why is that? Oh, that's right, because they only show up on Sunday where we do dramas. We don't teach anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't show up for the Wednesday night service where we do all the teaching. And uh, Oh, and so he came out against his own thing, you know, and yeah. started seeing the problems in it, which was good that he saw the problems with it, but but so many took that and they wanted to push it and push it. And you know, it's like, oh, let's do it. We're really relevant and hip. We're going to do a sermon series on Jaws. Yeah, when was the last Jaws? But Jaws 3 came out in what, like 90? <laughs> <laughs> something right you know i mean so, okay star wars maybe because they keep coming out with new ones but you know it's like these movie theater series that they pe- these pastors do that are like on uh, you know movies from the 80s and stuff that's to be relevant how is that yeah. relevant and even if it's a contemporary movie that they're using it's still not relevant it's still not it's still not the power of the word of god and that's what it boils down to and, and a lot of some of the secret sensitive churches like um, bill hybels they say that they do the, the deep teaching on wednesday night and so if you read through their material or you attend their leadership courses that's what the church program program is intended their format of church is intended to do is to is to sort of lure you in on a Sunday morning and then try to get you uh, uh, lured into a Wednesday night Bible study where they say the deep teaching goes on for the church so Sunday morning is for unbelievers and the midweek Bible study is for believers but I would be willing to bet you that in 90% and this would be a conservative estimate 90% of the time they're not getting any kind of deep teaching on their Wednesday night Bible study we had a couple that was going to a local seeker sensitive church and they came and visited with us one time and he was uh, we were talking about church and church ministry, and, and he kind of said, "Well, you know, in, in in on Sunday mornings, we we don't really go deep because we don't want to scare off unbelievers, and unbelievers come. But then on Wednesday nights, when we do the deep teaching, and so that's where we go to get fed." And so I looked him right in the eye and I said, "So on Wednesday night, are you getting fed?" And he just looked back with his deer in the headlight stare, and he said, "Well, no, not really." <laughs> and I said, "Do you know why that is?" And he said, "No, why is it?" And I said, it's "Because the people who are feeding you on Wednesday night are getting fed on Sunday morning, so they're not taking you any deeper on Wednesday night than they can go themselves on a Sunday morning because." the leadership of the church is shallow and everything about it is intended to be shallow and that that's a matter of intention in order to keep the goats there and the goats happy on a Sunday morning. Since it's intentionally shallow, they're not going to be able to take you any deeper than they themselves can go. And so they never they never get to the meat and potatoes of the Word of God. They're constantly giving you milk if they give it to you at all and uh, and they're not able to take you any deeper on Wednesday night for that very reason. Yeah, and I mean even Joel Osteen will sit there and hold up a Bible at the beginning. I've never watched Joel Olstein's services, but I mean I've heard many people say first thing he does on every every service is hold up a bible and say that he believes in it and then what does he do after that you know i like how J- justin peters puts it right he opens the bible it says he's going to hold to the bible but then after that spends the rest of the time misquoting and con- misconstruing the bible and twisting it um and this is the thing i mean they don't they're not looking for uh the truth they're looking to get numbers they're looking to to get uh, a bigger platform and more money and these things and, and as christians that should not be our focus i mean our focus should not be on trying to, you know, do what might work for the world to get more people to focus on 
us. This is the biggest thing I have an issue with. We as Christians should be getting people focused on Christ, not us. And so much of what's called Christian ministry nowadays, you see them focusing on them and you see them doing, hey, I'm a victim. Look at me. Poor me. I, I, I acted like a jerk to someone and now they're, they're treating me like a jerk and it's, I'm a victim. No, you're not. You were a jerk. <laughs> yeah. The church is, uh, individual Christians in the church have adopted the same, uh, worldly intersectionality ideology and has crept into the church. You know, the, there are, there are people who wear it as a badge of honor that they can get good men to speak ill of them. If they can attack and troll enough people on Facebook that they can, they can get Phil Johnson or James White or Justin Peters to, uh, come, come after them on Facebook or defend themselves, then, then they feel like they have earned a badge of honor that I got, I got so and so responding to me and I'm in a Twitter battle with so and so. Uh, he's the bad guy and I'm the good guy and, you know, so I'm the victim because he's coming after me and, and, uh, and, and attacking me on Twitter. And it's, it's intersectionality, intersectionality, but in the Christian church. And the sad thing is some of the, some of those people are actually signers of the statement on social justice in the gospel. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like they, they, they are social justice warriors. They have that same entitlement mentality where they're owed everything and everyone should be focused on them and doing for them. And they haven't really thought that through so much. And yet they'll sit there and say, oh, others, others have the problem. They're social justice warriors. Right? You know what? There's a lot of professing believers that, um, are social justice warriors, but in a different sense, they have the same entitlement mentality. A lot of victimology. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, uh, you know, I want to, I want to, as you know, we'll play our spiritual transition game, but, uh, bef- before we get that, you know, I, I think, I think I'm going to ask you to transition to the gospel on something. Cause I, I think that'll be interesting. It's time now to start the spiritual transition game. Okay, so this is where we transition from whatever is given to the gospel. You'll give me something that I have to transition to the gospel. I, of course, am going to be kind to you. I'm going to give you something that I want you to transition to the gospel. And then you'll give me something. I will transition. And then you'll have more time because after I transition, I'm going to ask you then to transition to what I give you first. So I'm giving you lots of time to think about it. I'm so kind to you. So you're, you're going to give me the topic. I'm I have. Going to give you, I'm going to give you a topic. Then you're going to give me a topic. I'm going to transition. Then you transition. So you have more time to think through your transition. See how kind I am. So here's going to be the thing I want you to transition to. Uh, you know, when I was out at your place, uh, being, being raised Jewish, there were certain things I wasn't allowed to eat, but you know, every, every single meal seemed to have one thing in it, uh, that, that contained something that wasn't kosher that I shouldn't eat. You, you know what that thing is? Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Carbs? But no, no, not carbs. <laughs> <laughs> I fed you a lot of pork while you were out here. Yeah. A lot of pork. You gave me a lot of pork. Mostly bacon. I think every meal had bacon in it. So it was okay. a, it was an accident. Honestly, it wasn't. Oh, about sure it was. Well, you know what? We've eaten a lot of pork while you're here. So since since you wanted to feed me lots of unkosher food, I, I'm going to ask you after you give me something to transition to. I want you to transition from bacon to the gospel. Okay, so you think about that. Uh, <laughs> so okay. so you give me something that I have to transition to. And folks, this is not edited. So if I stumble, if I hesitate, it's because I'm really not sure how to do it. But the reason we do the game is so that we don't need to sit there and say, Lord, please give me an opportunity to share the gospel. No, you can take any conversation with practice and transition to the gospel. The more you play this game with other friends, yes, it may take you time to transition, but you take something, you build a story around it, you build it into weaving it through something, asking questions with the person, looking for how can I transition to the gospel and look for opportunities. And then what you're doing is you're actually making the opportunities. You don't have to pray, Lord, give me an opportunity. You make the opportunity. Therefore, I would say every conversation can become a gospel conversation if you want 
wanted to. So, Pastor Jim, what am I going to be taking? Well, I'm going to do my transition first. Are you ready for it? Sure. Okay, so bacon under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, was prohibited for the Jews, not for all people, because this was a, a law specifically for the Jewish people to keep them separate, to set them apart, regulating their uh, ceremonial cleanliness, etc. Uh, various food laws were like that. In fact, another example of that is shellfish. And I was um, uh, I was I, I was raised as the grandchild and the great grandchild of Seventh Day Adventists. So I have some Seventh Day Adventist grandparents in my background who, though they would raise pork and pigs, they would never eat them. And I never understood that. To me, that was always like, uh, if it's unclean, it's unclean. Uh, that's like saying I raise the I raise the pot, but I don't smoke it. So they would raise the pork, but they would never eat it. And they none of their my my great grandmother was a Seventh Day Adventist. She had nine children. None of them would eat pork. None of them would ever touch it. My grandmother being one of her children who would never touch pork. So I was bringing my grandma back from a doctor's appointment in a in a town not too far away from us here, and uh, she wanted to take me out for lunch. I said, Well, where do you want to go? She said, Let's go to Red Lobster. And I said, What What are you going to eat at Red Lobster? There is nothing you can eat there. She said, Oh, I can eat crab, I can eat shrimp, I can eat lobster. I said, you can't eat any of that. shellfish. It's unclean by the Old Testament standard. And she said, uh, she said, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. Look it up in, in the book of Leviticus, the same chapter that condemns you eating pork also condemns you eating shellfish. You can't eat those. Those are unclean. If, you, if you've ever eaten a piece of shellfish, you might as well have eaten a, a ham sandwich or a pork chop or a slice of bacon, a BLT, because it is all condemned under the Jewish Old Testament. And, and then I explained to her why it is that today, as a Christian, I can eat pork. And shellfish, and I explained, Grandma, because I can I can enjoy those things because those laws were part of the expectation to the Jewish community. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law on my behalf so that I can be righteous before God. So I'm not avoiding pork in order to earn my righteousness because somebody else came and died on a cross to pay the price for my sin. I'm an unregenerate, condemned sinner, and I need forgiveness, and I need righteousness, and I need a Savior. And one came to pay that price, to die on a cross in my stead so that I can be free from the requirements requirements of the Old Testament law. Now, the righteous demands of the law are written upon my heart, and now I do them because I have been forgiven and because I am righteous, and I want to live in accordance with the righteousness that I have as a free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. How's that? Very good. Very good. I, I enjoy gardening, and uh, I just planted my garden. I just planted my garlic, which is different than normal uh, food and vegetables in a garden. You plant the garlic in the fall, and then it stays in the ground through the winter and uh, comes up in the spring. So I'm looking forward to a good garlic harvest in the, in the spring. Is are they uh, is garlic? Uh, um, I'm trying to remember the term. I think it starts with PMR, where it comes up every year. Per, perennial, per, perennial? No, perennial. no, it's not. Okay, so so the garlic you 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 plant it once and then it comes up and that's it, right? That's it. Yep. Like yeah, you pull it up and then you keep the bulb that you harvest. You keep that. You break it apart and plant the individual cloves the next season. So you plant you plant you the plant in the fall. You plant in the fall, not in the spring. Fall. Yeah. So I should go plant my my garlic now, and I should I can grow some garlic. Yeah, it's, it's homegrown garlic is amazing. It's awesome. I, I, I pick it. Yeah, I mean it, the thing the thing with the garlic. I mean I, I'd almost be willing to try that. I I mean I have my garden. I have a, a bunch of things in there. Um, and I, this year has been, and I think you and I talked about this. This year has been hard with the garden because we just had a lot of rain. I mean I didn't even put a sprinkler in my garden at all, and basically we had so much water that tomatoes. I got some. Some tomatoes, but my cantaloupe, I got one cantaloupe. That was it. The uh, squash 
and zucchini and everything just it had what what's called root rot. I mean, it's just so wet that there was just water sitting there like all the time. And even though the plants need the water, they had so much of it that it just, it killed them. They, they, I mean, I just got no crop this year, which was really kind of depressing because I like my, my vegetable garden and, um, <clears throat> especially in Jersey tomatoes. Now that's something you really would appreciate. You know, it's Jersey tomatoes are something that, you know, you don't understand, but, uh, we got the good humidity, you know, that, that creates good tomatoes. But, um, but you know, this year I had nothing and, and a lot of it is, as a, as someone that does gardening, as you know, you're, you're dependent upon not just rain, but not having too much rain, good soil. But you know, there's times where the soil can get too much pH and you have to, you have to change it. It's one of the reasons you have to change up the vegetables. And, and the thing that's amazing is that you, you sit and think, so many people think if, if they like something, oh, this is good. Like I should get more of this. Reality is plants need water, but too much water kills them. You know, certain, certain plants need more pH, but too much pH kills them. Yeah, you know, that's actually the same with us. There's things that we think is really good. I mean, you know, some people like fast food. Too much of it, well, yeah, okay, then then <laughs> it's not too healthy for us, right? I mean, there's things that we think if we just have more of it, uh, it would be good because we we enjoy it. And the reality is that those things will end up killing us. You know, there's actually only one thing in this world that I could think of that where the more of it you get, it wouldn't harm you. I mean, if you think about everything, if you do too much, everyone talks about not doing things in excess, doing things in moderation, and and yet because every almost everything. I could think of will be harmful in excess except for one and that is a love for God I mean the fact is is that we're naturally we don't love God we we hate him actually we're his enemy and yet when we think about it um here you have someone who has created the entire world. He came to earth as a man. He died in our place to pay the sin that you and I owe. We break his laws and yet he paid the fine for us. And yet this is the one thing in the universe, I think, that we can have more and more and more of and never have a bad effect. Never is excess a bad thing in this one thing. And yet it's the one thing so many people avoid. It's the one thing that you can have in excess and not be harmful. And it's the one thing people avoid. And it's been interesting thing where everything else in excess can be damaging. A love for God is not damaging. It's actually healthy. And yet it's the one thing we all avoid. And so I guess just the thought would be is, you know, do you have a love for God or are you still one that thinks of him as your enemy? Good. Pastor Jim, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, look forward to the conference out in Kootenai. And um, I mean, just for the record, um, you know, there was a date change that that occurred with Justin Peters and I on, on a conference so he could be there at, at church for Justin Peters. And I think think, I think I, I got to talk to Justin, but I, I believe the words I had for him was, I'll try to see if we could change the date, but you got to find a way for Pastor Jim to get me out to the church for, for Jason Lyle. So I didn't need Justin at this next conference. So that's not on me. <laughs> uh, no, it's, I think it's, I think it's on Justin. Hey, listen, maybe Justin Peters ministries will fly you out. There you go. And I think, I think, you know, Hey, just remember hashtag Justin. I win. In fact, I sh- I could give a plug, right? You don't mind me plugging this. I'm sure. No, no, not at all. I, I should say with you here, so for, for the public record, for folks who know that Justin I win, if you don't, well, here's the thing. Go to justiniwin.com and there's actually a video explaining the history of it and what it's all about. And you can donate to Justin Peters Ministries and just make sure you're in the comments you put hashtag Justin I win. And I've done everything and I've done, whether it's the domain, coming up with that domain, and you and I both know who's the web developer of that. The site. brainchild behind it. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and all of my crazy ideas to get
get donations to Justin Peters. I've run them all by you, his pastor, and you, you have been in an agreement with them, have you not? That's right. That's right. So I've, I haven't done anything without Justin's pastor's approval. So it's pastor approved to donate to <laughs> justinpeters.com and, uh, and you can help me, uh, win a, a battle with him over bragging rights and just make sure you put hashtag Justin I win in the comments. And, and you can even tweet it out. You know, I was glad to, I was glad Justin actually called me and said that he got a rather large donation that came in. And yes, in the comments, it said hashtag Justin I win. <laughs> I had great joy to know that someone out there and I know who she is, but someone out there was very generous to Justin and donated to him. And I was thrilled to hear that he got a big donation. <laughs> well, both Justin Peters Ministries and Striving for Eternity Ministries are worthy of listener support and donations. The money is put to good use. Yeah, we we try here as well as there. And and you know, we should we should plug this. Both Justin and I, Justin Peters Ministries and Striving for Eternity are trying to raise money to do a trip. We're looking to go to the Philippines for two weeks, go to several different churches in several different islands, actually. Um, and we have a church down there that is looking to have us out. They can take care of the hotel, but Justin and I have to find our own way out there. So if you would like to help us, you can. We have a Patreon page. It's in the show notes. You can also go to strivingforattorney.org, hit the donate button, and there's a place where you can donate monthly or you can give a one-time donation. But we're looking to raise the funds to be able to go out there. Why? Because the fall gospel is so prevalent out there, the, the prosperity gospel and things like that, and they don't have trained men to teach them the truths. And we're going to be going out there and one of the things we're going to be doing is we are planning to meet with pastors alone, not just doing the conferences we're doing, but Justin Peters and I plan to meet with some of the pastors and we actually are trying to set up with meetings with some of the very men that are following these false teachers. And so we're hoping to be able to actually see a change in the, the, the islands in the Philippines with a proper gospel message and some training on how to interpret the Bible and the things they need to know when they look at theology so that they would be prepared. So if you can help us, you can help both Justin and I to get out there. We are going to go regardless. We're going because we have donors that try to help us, but we have decided we're going with or without support because it's that important and you can help us. I encourage you to do this. You could. Go to justinpeters.com. Go to uh, strivingfraternity.org. Actually, it might be justinpeters.org. Sorry. Uh, but go Go to both and donate monthly. Uh, the monthly support matters so much more than a one-time gift because we have monthly expenses and it helps with that. And so I, I'd ask you to think about doing that. So Pastor Jim, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your Thank insights you. and uh, keep up the good work there in, in Kootenai, Idaho. Kootenai, Idaho. It's been fun, Andrew. Thank you. The, the, the land where people are, not only are people allowed to carry guns, but the state actually looks like a gun when you turn it on side. We are a free people out here. As he, he's holding up his... <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm from Jersey. We're not allowed to look at those things. Until next time, just remember to strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Oh,